An overseer then must be above reproach. I think that's the one qualification. That means he's blameless. Doesn't mean he's sinless. But it does mean that there is not a glaring area of sin in his life in which he's a bad example to the church and to the world in. That, that's what it means. It means he deals with his sin. There's, not, there's nothing that stands out that when people look at that elder, they go, and he's an elder? That's a joke. In some churches, leaders are chosen based on their success in the business world, their financial contributions to the church, or various other yardsticks. And that's a recipe for disaster in the life of the church and presents a real obstacle to unsaved people coming to salvation. The most important factor in choosing church leaders is spiritual maturity. There are other important considerations, but leaders in particular, and Christians in general, must not bring reproach upon Jesus. Our job is to make Him look good, because He is good. We'll hear more about that today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And we're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul said that we are ambassadors for Jesus. If our lives don't match our message, our message will count for nothing in the eyes of the people around us. That's true for everyone who claims the name Christian. But for leaders in the church, it's extra true. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians while we take a look at 1 Timothy. Here's Pastor Steve. So you and I are, are to be examples of what it means to be a Christian. That, that's why the Bible places such high standards, not only for all of us, but especially for church leaders. I'd like you to see this. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 lists the qualifications for an elder. An elder is synonymous in the Bible with a pastor. An elder is not an executive who meets with a board of men. He's a pastor. It's, he's a pastor. He's a shepherd. He's an elder. He's an overseer. He's a bishop. All of those names speak of the, the same office. And uh, Paul sent Timothy, actually left Timothy in Ephesus, which is what First Timothy, the background is there, in order to set things in order, to straighten out things. What do you need to straighten out? The leadership, the elders, they were messed up in doctrine, messed up in behavior. And so in chapter three, he gives a list of the qualifications for a leader. He says in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So if a man comes along and says, uh, I've been an elder in a church up north and I'd like to serve uh, at Lakeside as an elder, that's a fine work he desires to do. That's a wonderful desire to, to do that, but is he qualified? Anybody can desire to do that. Anybody can say for a host of reasons they want to be in leadership, but is the man qualified? Well, how would you know? Well, beginning at verse 2, Paul lists the qualifications. And I, I really believe, to correctly interpret this, there is one qualification, and then there are categories that you fit that qualification into. What I mean by that, he says in verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. I think that's the one qualification. That means he's blameless. doesn't mean he's sinless. But it does mean that there is not a glaring area of sin in his life in which he's a bad example to the church and to the world in. That, that's what it means. It means he deals with his sin. There's, not, there's nothing that stands out that when people look at that elder, they go, and he's an elder? That's a joke. That's what Paul's talking about. And then he lists the various areas of life that a man must be above reproach in. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be temperate. He must be prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, Free from the love of money, he must be one who manages his household well. 
keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the house of God? What he means by that is if he can't take care of the three or four children in his own home, how's he going to take care of the three or four hundred at church? And verse 6 says, and not a new convert, so that he'll not become conceited, not become lifted with pride, he's talking about, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must uh, have a good reputation with those outside the church. So unbelievers must know that he's a man of integrity, so that he'll not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Paul is talking here about the highest of standards, and we dare not lower these standards. Leaders are not chosen in a church based on uh, their clout in the community, how long they've been in a church, their financial picture. They are chosen based on two things. Do they have a desire to serve, and are they qualified? All of these are character qualities apart from being able to teach. That's, that's a giftedness that, that God gives. Very important for us to understand. They are the highest of standards because leaders set the example. But it's not just for elders, because I can imagine many of you saying, I'm glad I'm not an elder. I don't have to live up to that. Paul goes on in verse 8 to speak about deacons, and then he speaks in verse 11. It says women, uh, I interpret that to mean the female deacons. And he mentions that these people are also to have the highest of standards. Now, lest you think, well, that eliminates me because I'm not an official deacon. I'm not an official deaconess. Let me tell you this. Though we have and we believe that there are official people chosen to be deacons and deaconesses, anyone who serves in any official capacity in the church is really a deacon or a deaconess. It means simply that you are a servant of the church. If you are, for example, a Sunday school teacher, you ought to be qualified to be a deacon or a deaconess. If you're an usher in our church, you ought to be qualified to be a deacon or a deaconess. If you're on any committee, missions, finance, building committee, you are official representatives of our church in the church and in the community. If you're a musician, a choir member, an Awana helper, an able worker, ladies, Bible study leader, all staff, any ministry leader ought to fit these qualifications because you have been asked to officially represent this church. That's, that's the spirit of this. And he says in verse eight, deacons likewise must be men of dignity not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That means that he, that he obeys the word of God. His conscience or her conscience is clear. These men also must first be tested, then let them serve as deacon. It doesn't mean that you take them in a room and give them a test. What this means is that over time uh, you observe them and you see how they handle the issues of life. They, you, don't, you don't promote somebody to be a deacon because they've been faithful to your church for two weeks. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be, and I think he's talking about the, uh, the women who serve in this area, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons, then he goes back to the men, must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. His point being that anybody who serves in any leadership capacity in the church is to model exemplary Christian behavior for the church to follow as well as the world to observe. And I didn't go into the various 
the various areas that these uh, that we need to be above reproach, and we have messages on that and and all kinds of material. But I just wanted you to see the big picture that leadership requires godliness, exemplary behavior. Now, Paul understood this, and he also understood, and we need to balance this with other scriptures. He understood that God is the one in His sovereignty who draws people to Himself. It's not based on on our godliness. It's not based on our conduct. Paul also understood that the success of the gospel is not dependent upon the persuasiveness of the preacher or the attractiveness of his life. We understand that. We understand God is sovereign. We understand that he works sometimes in spite of of us. However, Paul was acutely aware of the fact that an inappropriate lifestyle on the part of a Christian, especially a church leader, could and would discredit the gospel in the eyes of an observing world. And that's that's his point in verse 3. And so Paul was very careful not to give anybody an excuse to reject his message because of the way he lived. Now, it's very interesting the way he put it in verse 3. Let's look more closely at verse 3. He says, giving no cause for offense in anything. The thought behind this concept of offense or offending someone is to cause them to stumble in in the sense of putting an obstacle in their way, the obstacle being our own lives, hindering them, tripping them up. In other words, Paul wanted to make sure there wasn't anything in his life that would be an obstacle or a hindrance to someone coming to faith in Christ. He he reiterated this in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said that he beat his body, he, he brought it under subjection, otherwise he feared that he would be put on the shelf, that God wouldn't use him anymore. That's the same thought here. Paul had a, a conscious and a, and a holy and a wholesome fear of being disqualified from ministry. Now that ought to be our perspective too, not just the Apostle Paul's. We ought to have and we ought, we ought to examine our lives to make sure that there's nothing in our life, your life, and my life that would hinder someone from considering Christ. Is there that in your life? How about your speech? Do you speak with kindness to people? Do you speak in such a way that reflects the truth in love? How about your morality? Are you involved in any kind of sexual misbehavior? Claim the name of Christ, you put that stuff away. The world does that, we don't. How about something as seemingly insignificant as tipping a waiter and a waitress at a restaurant? Do you realize some of the worst advertising for the Gospels when Christians go to a restaurant after church and are very demanding, and the waiters and waitresses know the groups that come in. We're the ones dressed in ties and nice... (laughs) clothing, and we can be very demanding, and then you leave a little, if any, tip. What do you think that they, that they are going to think about your Christianity? That's a horrible advertisement. Listen, it's worth a few dollars to give a good testimony for Christ. That's what we're talking about, all that kind of stuff. Now, we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand what Paul is talking about. Whenever we hear this term offending or, or offense, If we're not clear about this, we might make a serious blunder in our lives. We need to be clear that our personal lives must never be offensive to anyone, or else it could be a hindrance to the gospel. But also, we need to be clear and understand that the message that we preach, the message of salvation by grace, is offensive to the unsaved mind. You and I are not by our lives to give an offense, but the message we preach will naturally be offensive. It will be. 
It will be. In fact, Paul mentioned this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, when he said concerning the Jewish people of his day, for indeed, he said, Jews ask for a sign and, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Why would the Jewish people stumble over that, that message of, of the cross? Because in their day, they were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for a kingly reigning Messiah. They were looking for someone who would free them from the oppression of Rome. And Jesus came and preached the message about sin and the need to repent and come to him. And then when it was all said and done, he allowed the evil men to put him on a cross. And the Jewish people looked at that and they saw a beaten, humiliated, suffering Messiah. And they said, that's not what we're interested in. We don't want that. In fact, we're offended that you would think that that would be our Messiah. Paul said that that message still offends. Even if we don't have the perspective of the first century Jewish person, the gospel still offends. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul said the same thing when he said, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, that is to say, if I'm still preaching salvation by works, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. If I'm still preaching a salvation of human effort and achievement, then people aren't going to stumble over that. The cross causes people to stumble. Why? Because the cross reveals us for as we really are. We're depraved, wicked, rebellious sinners. We're objects of God's wrath. We, we deserve hell and judgment forever and ever. And that's not a message that builds your self-esteem. That's not a message that makes you feel good about yourself. That's not a message in which you thank people for telling you that you're wicked, you're a wicked sinner. But that is the message and, and that offends people. And if we're going to offend people, let's make sure we're preaching the right gospel, but not our lives. Let's make sure that is the message we preach about salvation from sin and not sin in our own lives. Because if sin in our lives does create an obstacle in the path of someone who needs the Lord, then certainly God holds us responsible for something very, very serious. Look at verse 3 again. He says, giving no cause for offense in anything. Here's the purpose. Here's the reason. So that the ministry will not be discredited. The Greek word that is translated discredited means to blame in the sense of disgrace. Disgrace. In other words, Paul didn't want the ministry to be disgraced because of any sin on his part. But I want you to know it goes deeper than that. It does go deeper than that. This particular Greek word also conveys the suggestion of mockery and ridicule. In fact, the name given by ancient Greeks to the god of mockery and ridicule comes from this word. It's related to it. So Paul's thought here seems to be that he doesn't want the ministry to become a laughing stock by the way he lives. Now, that's a heavy thought. That's really a profound thought. There is nothing more ridiculous. Nothing more ridiculous for us to do than proclaim a, a salvation that has transformed us, we say, that Christ has saved us from sin, but then we live with some glaring inconsistencies in our behavior. You know as well as I do that Christians live in, uh, when Christians live in conflict with the high standards of Scripture, we're laughed at by the world. They mock us. They they, they laugh at us, they ridicule us, they call us hypocrites, they, they just make jokes about us for being such phonies. 
They mock us with skits on such television programs as Saturday Night Live and the old church lady, self-righteous woman. They mock us with old Hollywood and sometimes new Hollywood movies, old ones like Elmer Gantry, television shows that depict ministers and Christians in in general as self-righteous people who are always harping and preaching to others, but they're living immoral lives and they're dishonest and they're money-hungry and that's the way the world sees us, and the world laughs at us. And the more they, they laugh at us, the more the gospel is disgraced. But more than the ministry being disgraced, God himself is actually blasphemed by those who represent him. Let me show you what I mean. In Romans chapter 2, Paul, in the first three chapters of Romans, is putting various groups on trial to show them that the world is sinful and guilty before a holy God. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he turns his attention to the self-righteous Jewish person who said, I have the law, I obey the law, I will come along and teach ignorant and foolish Gentiles the truth about the law. I know everything that they need to know, so I will be their instructor. And Paul is going to just pull the carpet out from under them. He says in verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, the light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, the foolish meaning meaning the Gentiles here, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This is just dripping with self-righteousness, pompous pride, arrogance. Paul says, let me tell you something in verse 21. Let me tell you something about yourself. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. And then watch this. He's quoting from the Old Testament and applying it to them, and it applies to us. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. What what an incredible statement. Unbelieving Gentiles looked at the evil behavior of the Jewish people who claimed to know God, claimed to love God, claimed to represent him, and they blasphemed God because of their behavior. And their attitude was this. Look, if his chosen people, the Jewish people who claim to be his chosen people, if they don't honor him by their behavior, if they don't obey his law, then he must not be worth honoring. He must not be worth knowing. If he doesn't mean that much to them, then certainly we're not interested in hearing about him. We'll go back to our idols. God says that's blasphemy, and we're responsible in some respects. See, folks, this is precisely how the world responds to the sinful inconsistencies of Christians in general and church leaders in particular. They look at our lives and they see hypocrisy. Let me me show you Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, Paul just hammers this again about what our behavior should be like and how it, how it impacts others. We're not just living the Christian life because we want to have so-called victory in our lives. We want to be a good testimony for Christ. We number, number one, we want to please the Lord, but number two, we want to be a good testimony for him. But in Titus chapter two, let me begin at verse one. Paul says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So he's telling young Titus, speak, speak the truth, speak clear and sound doctrine. 
And here's the sound doctrine. Now watch this. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love uh, to, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Watch the purpose here. Why, why should any of us, older men, older women, younger women, why should you do all of this? Verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Because if you don't do this, you're dishonoring the word of God. You claim to believe the word of God, then obey it. There's more. Verse 6, Likewise, now he turns to the young men. He says, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. He's speaking to Titus now. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent, here's another reason, so that the opponent, meaning the opponent of Christianity, will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Do you see his evangelistic heartbeat here? Do this so that the word of God isn't uh, dishonored. Do this so that your opponents, the opponents of the gospel, can't have anything bad to say about you, anything that would be valid. I suppose they can come up with all kinds of bad things to say, but make sure that the charges aren't, aren't going to stick. They're false charges. If you suffer, Peter says, make sure you suffer as a Christian and not for your own sinful behavior. So in all places, in many places, God's word says this. Listen, our behavior should indicate that Jesus Christ is real, is special, that we, we love him. That's to be our conduct. If we claim that he's the one true God, we claim that he's our Lord, if we claim that he's the only way of salvation, we ought to live in such a way that we prove those things are true by our lives. Now, that's how the gospel can be hindered when any one of us, especially a church leader, is guilty of misconduct. It could be anything from a scandalous issue such as moral misconduct to an unethical business practice. I mean, this is income tax time. I hope you're having integrity on your forms. It could be an attitude of anger or bitterness, or it could be something like we see with these televangelists, uh, people who, who preach a gospel of health and wealth and prosperity as they sit on their, their little golden thrones uh, at the TV studios. And, you know... Um, if I wasn't a Christian, I would look at that and say, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't even like the way they look. I don't like the way they dress. It's gaudy. I won't mention names, but you know what I mean. But that's how, that's how unbelievers look. They make jokes about that. Whatever it might be, the world takes notice and they laugh at the gospel and they say there must not be anything to their message or their God because their lives show that they don't take their Christianity seriously. If they took their Christianity seriously, they'd live a different way. They practice what they preach. And so they, they, this, in their mind at least, validates their excuse for continuing to reject the gospel. There's an old gospel song about the excuses people come up with for not coming to church. It's true, amusing and sad, all at the same time. The pastor didn't shake my hand. The pews are too hard. The weather was bad. It was too nice to not go to the beach. And so on. Lame excuses. And people have lame excuses for rejecting the gospel. But I hope I never become one of those lame excuses. 
Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. To find out more about Lakeside, visit lakesidechapel.com or call the office at 727-441-1714. Today's broadcast was the middle of a three-part sermon, part of a series of messages from 2 Corinthians 6 about hindrances to the gospel. Visit our website to catch up on previous broadcasts. The web address is versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Perhaps you've heard the old saying that no good deed goes unpunished. Perhaps it seems like that when you've been in a leadership role. People ignore your wisdom. They accuse you of things you didn't do. They take advantage of your generosity. And you start to wonder why you let yourself be subject to that kind of abuse. Been there? I have. When Pastor Steve returns with our next lesson, we'll see that endurance under those conditions is a wonderful testimony to the validity of the gospel and the power of Christ in you. We are here to give you strength between